We've all seen it in movies and TV shows and books and in real life, sometimes in a lunch table or a tight-knit group of people who are popular by association, otherwise known as the cool kids. It might seem harmless, but it can be problematic and detrimental to personal growth and to our culture and community in schools, neighborhoods, churches, really everywhere. Furthermore, it's a mirage. It's not even real. And that's the funny irony. The pursuit of being cool is the most unreal kind of connection you can make, an authenticity killer. Today, Neil and I are going to talk about why the pursuit of being cool can stop your growth and keep you from some of the deepest and most meaningful relationships available in this life, and how to conquer this human nature desire to be perceived as one of the cool kids. Good job last week, Neil, on doing the podcast solo. Well, not solo. You did it with Sander. You guys did an amazing job. Thank you. It was fun. It's always a good time with Xander. I've heard Xander talk a million times and it never gets old. I'm excited to be back, though. And we have talked about this topic forever, <laughs> for so long. And it's one of, I think that is going to be really important for not only the adult listeners, but also maybe to talk to your kids about too, because I just see such a problem with this in our area and I'm sure many other areas as well. So we're going to talk today about the pursuit of being cool and why that's problematic in our society and in personal development and growth and in relationships and so many aspects of life. So let's start with you, Neil, because you told me you're a self-proclaimed expert on trying to be cool. Yes, I am. <laughs> For some reason, I don't know, I, I, I had older brothers. I'm the youngest of six boys. I always viewed my older brothers, especially my two older brothers that were like closest to me in age. They were just like the most amazingly cool people on the face of the planet. And then all their friends were just as cool and they were the cool guys and doing the cool things. So naturally I wanted to be like them. Whatever I thought was they were doing that was cool. I wanted to do that. They're teenage, young teenage kids. So they're not always doing <laughs> cool, actually cool things or are things that are like making the best choices. Somehow that got woven into me as a child this idea of of being cool, I think society and just upbringing and whatnot, I feel like everyone kind of dealt with or deals with that to some degree. And did you feel cool as, it, let's start in elementary school and then through middle school and high school, did you identify as a cool kid? It's such a facade, really. I Just for me, I'm, I'm, I'll speak for myself. I think for me, in the moment, I was doing something and I could tell people were like buying into whatever I was doing. Like, whoa, that's cool or you're cool or I think I felt cool in that in that moment. But I think deep down, you know, you're just kind of like, oh, like this, this doesn't feel authentic or good. Hmm. Very interesting. I feel like I never in at least my growing up years identified as a cool kid. Well, I wouldn't say identified at myself as a cool kid. It was just more like I wanted to be cool. Like No, but let's have a real conversation about this. Were you one of those kids that it was like, oh, he's in the cool kid crowd? 
Um, if it was don't perceived play humble, that way, like, no, I'm think? just saying if it was perceived that way, it's because I was trying, like everything I did was in the name of trying to be cool. So I'm sure that there were a lot of people that were like, oh yeah, you were, but not in a, not necessarily in a good way. Well, there's a point to me asking this. So yeah. the point is where maybe some people perceived you as a cool kid or you were in the cool kid crowd or you were in the popular crowd. Did it feel like you were authentically connected to the other kids in this cool kid crowd? Like, did you feel like, did you feel secure with your that? Coolness. I, <laughs> your coolness? <laughs> I don't know. I'm I, trying not, to get to like, did that, what did it do for you? I think it created an ego mm-hmm. and like an artificial inflated version of myself where you just think highly of yourself. I'm thinking elementary school. And, and maybe, maybe middle school a little bit. I just, but it changed a lot in high school. I think I matured a lot and went through some things in my life just with losing a brother and, and, uh, at that particular time. So it kind of, it changed a lot of things, but prior to that, especially in elementary, for whatever reason, I just like, I just wanted to be cool. Like no matter what. Interesting. I had such a different experience growing up. I never identified as a cool kid. I, and I kind of went through phases of maybe resenting the cool kids for a while because I wanted to be part of it and I wasn't. And then just accepting and being okay with not being in the cool kid crowd. But I never felt like I was part of that. Like, oh, those are the popular kids. Just like on Mean Girls where it's like, oh, there's this table and there's that table. And I kind of was a floater. I feel like I floated in between friends and friend groups, but I also kind of was probably what a lot of people would consider a loner because I played the piano and I didn't go to a full day of school after fourth grade. I would take release time and go home. It's hard to like not yell nerd alert right now, but I'm going to refrain. Well, but here's what came out of that. I think a lot of really good things came out of me not building my identity around being a cool kid, at least in those years. I think that it forced me to have compassion. I always tried to, and this is, this is from my mom. I always tried to have an eye out for kids who looked like they really felt alone. I don't feel like I ever felt like that, like I was an outcast, but I definitely felt like a floater where there wasn't a specific group that I always did everything with and belonged to. And I was in with a certain group of people. And I think part of that was just being very involved in my school studies and in piano. And there wasn't a lot of time for goofing around after that. So, but I think what that taught me was to see people in a way that maybe I wouldn't have been able to if I had felt like I was just part of a specific group or crowd. But that changed for me when I went to college and maybe not in a good way in in some ways. I remember when I was getting ready to go to London, I kind of felt like I was going with the cool kid crowd. I like got in with the cool girls and was friends with them and part of that And then we got there and some of those girls didn't want to be friends with me after we were in London for a while. So again, I felt like I kind of went through this 
where do I belong? Who do I fit in with? And once I let go of being so worried about being in with the cool kids, I ended up making up some of my most treasured and greatest friendships that still to this day are the type of people who, if I called them right now, I mean, one friend in particular, Marianne, that I think of, we were very unlikely friends where we ended up together one day where there was like, everybody was supposed to get on the bus and somehow we missed it or something. And we awkwardly just sat there having hot chocolate and kind of looking at each other like, what are we going to talk about? Because we hadn't become friends up until that point. And then from that day on, you know, we started to talk and see each other like real people and connect on things that were greater than superficiality. And she became one of my best friends and still is a very dear friend to me, even though we don't talk that much. But my point with all of this is I think that sometimes being in a group or in a crowd can rob you of the ability to see other people as people. And you're just so worried about identifying with that group and being part of something that gives you an identity that then you lose sight of who else is around you. Yeah. I think that's the whole point. And and as we're talking, I'm thinking about we're initially using cool in kind of like it's negative context, like being maybe perceiving yourself as better than or like in as far as being like too cool or or whatnot. But I think it just depends on how you use it too. Cool can be like, oh, he's a cool person. Like this guy's super cool. Yeah. It like can you're be used nice in... or you're caring or you're loving or you're out like you're friendly. Right. So I think it, it's not necessarily that it's just like calling somebody cool or being cool as a is necessarily a bad thing. But I think in the context we're using it, it's looking at it in the sense of ego-driven, self-driven, self-aggrandizing version of being cool, right? Right. And I think the great differentiator there is not just looking at someone and saying, oh, cool, or that was a cool thing to do, but the pursuit of being cool is where I think you lose a lot of humanity and a lot of compassion and just eyes to see other people as people and as humans. The reason why we actually started talking about this topic forever ago was when I was still recovering from having Bobby and pulled up the Oprah Winfrey Network and was watching a special that Oprah did with Brene Brown. And they were talking about the pursuit of being cool and how it's just an authenticity killer and how the pursuit of being cool will oftentimes withhold some of people's greatest gifts because they don't want to be uncool. They don't want to be perceived as, oh, that's stupid or that's lame, or they're so worried about looking dumb to other people instead of being accepted as cool that they hold back from doing things or speaking up or standing up for someone or being inclusive because they don't want to be rejected. Like that's more important to them than whatever their conscience is telling them is right. Yeah. So it's like the vulnerability component. I loved how she said that too. She's like, when there's a culture of everyone's trying to be cool, vulnerability goes out the window. Yes. And and that I totally have seen that. And I've done that myself where like you're so you're trying so hard to play into what you think will be received as being cool or great or whatever, that you're you're negating or even going against some of these better valued parts of yourself that you know are better decisions, 
better values, doing things that are right. I just, as a kid, I, for some reason, I have so many vivid memories of doing things that were just outright wrong or bullying people or, and, you know, I don't want to go into like details of things that I did that were wrong, but stuff where it was like, I 100% went against my better self and my better intuition in the name of being cool. Mm. And now being an adult and looking back, it's just, it's almost heartbreaking. And it's yeah. like, man, that's so sad because at the core of that was just someone who wanted to be accepted and be loved and cared about. But I, I went about it in such an unhealthy way. And that's just sad, man. Like it really is sad. And I, I think about that and I've dug at that in recovery and really looked at the roots and that led me to into an addiction is those were some of the causes and conditions of my addiction. If you, you lift up the hood of my addiction, like that, that's what's underneath all of that is like wanting to be loved, like wanting to be cared about, wanting to be validated, mm. but trying to go about that in a way where it's like, if I'm cool, then I'll get all those things. Yeah. Which is so sad. Well, this is what Brene Brown said about it. She said, wanting to be perceived as cool isn't about wanting to be the Fonz. It's about minimizing vulnerability in order to reduce the risk of being ridiculed or made fun of. We hustle for our worthiness by slipping on the emotional and behavioral straitjacket of cool and posturing as the tragically hip and the terminally better than. Being in control isn't always about the desire to manipulate situations, but often it's about the need to manage perception. So that's what you're talking about is yeah, totally wanting other people to perceive you a certain way, not wanting to be ridiculed or made fun of. By the way, that's from her book, The Gifts of Imperfection. Let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are. And I worry a lot about this with the teenage girls that I work with in church, I see a lot of that worrying that they will be outcast from the cool group if they are inclusive of other people. I've I've seen it. I've heard about it. Like it's really sad. You're like not cool by association. Yes. You're like, oh, you're hanging out with so-and-so. They're like not cool. Yes. So therefore, you're not going to be cool. Yeah, there's exactly. some weird stuff. Like if happens. you're nice to this person, then you can't be in the, you can't sit with us as they say on Mean Girls. And I also think it can perpetuate some of the labels. Like you said, you wanted to call me nerd, nerd alert I, yeah, at the I was beginning. Joking. But, but it, I mean, but, but it think is, about that it. Stuff that's woven into culture. Yes, like culture, that's where, totally. where, how do you think I learned that? Like that's woven in, it's on all the movies. It's in all of the jokes. Like I can say certain things and everyone will know what I'm talking about because of the integral weaving into society of this whole concept. And sadly, society totally and Hollywood and all of the media, media or social media perpetuates that by always telling these storylines of, uh, let's go back to Greece, like the nerd yeah. that she starts wearing sexy clothes and smokes a cigarette and also, suddenly she's, cool. she's the cool kid. And she like, yeah. And they yeah. totally make fun of her for like being chased and all this stuff. Yeah. Like being older and watching that movie, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is gnarly. But there's so many movies like that, right? Where it's like the nerd kid turns into the cool kid, gets their romantic the desire. Girl, right. Like right. They get the car. They get the girl. They look cool. In the end, it's like Marty on Back to the Future. They change roles where Biff's no longer the cool kid. Now it's Marty's dad. And 
gets money and right after he punches Biff, then he like yeah turns into then that makes him the cool kid. So here's what's at risk though when you're so worried about that is going back to that thing that I was talking about in London where I made this unlikely friend Marianne who at first she told me at first when she saw me walk into we had like a pre London class that we had to go to weekly before we went on London study abroad. And I was in the broadcast journalism department. So I was typically kind of dressed like a little bit overdressed for school because I was filming my little TV spots or whatever for BYU TV. And I would say Corinne Foster, BYU TV Provo at the end of my little segments. Nice. And I, I'm sure you love that. Oh, I loved it. So it was cool. so fun. But, you know, I would be wearing like a blazer and a skirt and heels or something, even though there was like snow outside. She said that she would watch me walk into this class in my heels and my little blazer and skirt or whatever and just think, oh my gosh, this girl is so high maintenance. Like there, I will have nothing in common with her. <laughs> so we just hadn't connected at all until that day when we got stuck somewhere and it was just the two of us. And how I would have missed out on one of the most amazing humans that I've ever known. If I hadn't been in that situation where two unlikely friends ended up becoming such good friends. So I think that when you're overly concerned about, well, I don't want to associate myself with this like nerd alert person, like you called me or whatever. <laughs> I was just, you know, I know, but seriously, like, you know, that happens it, a lot well, where people are like, like, oh, I like, I don't want to, if I, if I sit by this person, it's going to make me look like I'm. I'm just like them and I don't want to get kicked out of the cool kids club. But you miss out on a lot of times like the best and deepest relationships and people who will round you out. It's good to be friends with people who are not exactly like you. That's something that the leader in our local church, our stake president, he talks about that all the time. Like be willing to hang out with people who don't think exactly like you, who don't look exactly like you, who maybe don't drive the exact same kind of car that you do. And I think when we've extended ourselves, and I think ARP is such a cool absolutely example of that, where you're kind of thrown into this random mix. And, and I think, too, there's a perception of like, oh, so you go hang out with like these like drunks off the street. It's not like see, that. Yeah. A lot of times it's doctors and lawyers and people who have these underground addictions that you would never know by looking at them. You would never guess. But then there are people who come off the streets and they are they're like barely off a bender or they're yeah. in different walks of life. But I think that's the that's why part of the reason why it's so cool. Well, well, speaking of truly cool. Yes. Is because people, it's, you it, see you're, people you're equal. Yes. It doesn't, there's, there's, you lose all of the sociological hierarchy kind of better than less than stuff. And it's like, we are human beings having the same experience. We have more commonalities than differences. And people are just, the vulnerability is so high. And that whole, all the, the cool or too cool or better than less than stuff is not almost non-existent. It creates this environment that is just incredible and amazing. And that's why the feeling is what it is in a lot of these meetings and why the spirit can be there so powerfully is because you eliminate that. And people will often associate it with the temple 
And ironically, I mean, you think about the temple, it's kind of the same thing. You're eliminating, we're all kind of the same. We're all dressed in white. We're doing the same things and we're worshiping together. It's kind of a cool core. I keep saying cool, which is so funny in this episode, (laughs) but it is, it's a really amazing correlation. You know that I love to say all roads lead back to beware of pride, which is my favorite talk. True. And this is, it talks about this. This is definitely a root of pride is either looking up or looking down. So in, in that you either are looking up and kind of resenting, like I said earlier, that you aren't part of the cool kids club and it makes you mad or you want to naysay or pick things apart about that group of people and it kind of makes you feel better in your victimhood or you're from the top down looking down at other people thinking like I'm a lot better than you and either way it's extremely destructive not only to relationships but just to yourself too you can't be one with God if you're looking down or looking up at other people with hate and opposition and resentment it's just impossible to be in a state of true peace and alignment with God if you're constantly looking down or up at other people. And one of the things, I mean, we do want to talk about solution too. We're not just here to hate on people who are trying to be cool. (laughs) But one of the solutions that is offered in this amazing talk, Beware of Pride, my favorite talk by Ezra Taft Benson, he says, we can choose to humble ourselves by conquering enmity toward our brothers and sisters esteeming them as ourselves and lifting them as high or higher than we are. And not in a like resentful way, but in a let's serve other people. Let's look at them as at least equals, if not, hey, how can I serve you? Like, what can I do to make your life better? And when you're in that servant position of not servant, but service oriented mindset or even servant leadership, as they call it sometimes, it just feels so much better. It feels so much better to look at literally every human. I mean, I was in Hawaii last week with a bunch of amazing women, including Lindsay Hadley. And we walked, we were walking into this like juice store and we walked by a man who was homeless and he was really dirty. And I mean, he looked like he hadn't had a shower in a month at least and was laying on the ground half asleep, Looked kind of looked like he was maybe half drunk or had some drugs in his system or something. Lindsay leaned over and put her hand on his shoulder and said, hey, sweetheart, are you okay? And he was kind of grumbled like, yeah. And she was like, do you need anything? And he said, no, I'm okay. And she said, okay, and walked away. And she meant it. She meant it. She looked this person in the eyes, touched him and said, are you okay? Do you need anything? Like that is what we're talking about when it's you see other people as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. I love, and in talking about, like, as you're talking about this comparison idea and reading that quote from Beware of Pride, a talk that I love is by Elder Cornish. He's a, like a leader in our church, but he says something really cool about the comparison thing. He says, please, my beloved brothers and sisters, we must stop comparing ourselves to others. We torture ourselves needlessly by competing and comparing. We falsely judge our self-worth by things we do or don't have and by the opinions of others. If we must compare, 
Let us compare how we were in the past to how we are today. Love that. Let us compare how we were in the past to to how we are today, or even how we want to be in the future. So I love that. That really was helpful for me hearing him say that. And I've done that a lot is I think I can get caught so easily currently, even though I know better, I can revert back to that schoolboy thinking of I'm either better than or less than everybody. I'm mm-hmm. either cool or, or not as cool. And either way, it's, it's, a, it's a lose. It's a lose-lose situation. But when I stop and I think of myself, how I was back then, what I struggled with back then, where I am now, and what I've worked through, overcome, or what I understand better, I'm like, okay, like I, I feel good. That's not a like one up, one down, winner, loser type proposition. I think that's just so powerful. If we're, if we're going to compare, let's compare ourselves to how we were as to how we are now or how we could be in the future. Yeah. Comparison, I feel like is such a killer for women too. And I feel like there's such a, this is where social media can do a total disservice to all of us feeling like everyone else is going on vacations. Everyone else is going to Taylor Swift except for me this summer. Everyone else has a perfect backyard and our backyard is like really Everyone needs some love. Cooler than I am. Yeah, exactly. Like, like honestly, I let me just tell you something about our backyard. This is this is funny, but our backyard has if you don't look close, people will see like pictures or videos of it and be like, "Oh, that's so cool. Like you have this outdoor space where you can seat a bunch of people." And that's true. We do. We have this like concrete built-in outdoor space that came with our home. But guess what? If you go out there, it is literally unusable at this point because somebody slapped on some kind of a veneer finish on there that I'm sure looked okay when we bought the house five years ago when they flipped this house. But now, because it was cheaply done, it has cracked and lifted and chipped off so badly that it's this uneven really unsightly surface that looks so bad. You literally couldn't even take stuff out there and have a dinner party or have people seated out there unless you put down like a pretty hefty placemat because it just looks really bad once you get up close to it. And so it's one of those things that I'm like, oh, like I hope people don't see that when they come over. But who cares? Like, honestly, when I go over to other people's houses, I don't look around and go, ooh, they haven't cleaned their baseboards for a while or or I wonder when the last time was that they used their Roomba or mopped or swept. Like nobody thinks about that stuff about anyone else. Nobody's looking for the imperfections in your home or in your life. I just think that there's a lot of people think about, they think that everyone else is looking for the holes and imperfections within their own life or their home or their kids or whatever. And the truth is most people are just thinking about themselves, honestly, honestly. And whenever we've been invited over to other people's homes, I'm not thinking about like, wow, they really should improve this part of their house. I'm thinking about, I'm so grateful that they invited us over. Like we have some neighbors that live just around the corner that invited us over. It was like the second or I don't know, a few weeks into when I started going back to church with Bobby after he was a newborn. And I was just so grateful that someone else would have us over and make a Sunday dinner. I wasn't thinking at all about, I don't, I have no idea if their baseboards were clean or not, even though I know that that's like 
one of the million things that women worry about is, does my house look perfect? Do my kids look perfect? Do Are we being perceived as, as having it all together? And the truth is nobody has it all together. Yeah. No, I totally would agree. Here's another Brene Brown gifts of imperfection quotation that's so good and so true and applicable to everyone. She said, when we value being cool and in control over granting ourselves the freedom to unleash the passionate, goofy, heartfelt, and soulful expressions of who we are, we betray ourselves. When we consistently betray ourselves, we can expect to do the same to the people we love. I feel like, yeah, I do that. I sometimes am worried about completely being myself, completely being accepted by other people and worrying about, are they going to think I'm good enough or weird? Or are they going to judge me? Or, I mean, we've talked about this so many times in regard to we've broken down anonymity and gotten super vulnerable with people. So do they accept us? Do they think we're weird? Do you know, are we accepted for who we are? And the truth is, when you're vulnerable and when you're real with people, that's where true connection really happens. That's why when you go to ARP, you feel like those people are family because you hear the good, bad, the ugly, everything in between, and you see them go from rock bottom to a lot of times getting their whole entire life back and then some. And it's it means something. It's so meaningful because you saw the raw and the real from the rock bottom day one. We just don't get that vulnerable a lot of times with our friends and associates in other phases of life, myself included. I think hard to get to that deeper layer of what? Are, who are you really underneath all of these layers of trying to be perceived in an acceptable way? And what are you about? What are you worried about? What are you? How often do we really tell people how we are when they ask us, how are you? It's the only people in ARP that really, I love asking somebody in a 12-step meeting, how are you? Because you get a very honest answer, which you never get. It's like mostly mostly like the grocery store answers. Yeah. But I, I think that's a very like really good insight. I think of the times that I had like the best groups of friends, the best connections with people around me. It's one of the times where I like, I didn't care about any of that stuff. I'm just like, man, I'm just living from the heart. I'm mm-hmm. very just, everything's from the heart. I'm communicating. I'm like loving people from the heart. The barriers are down and that's where I make the best friends and like cultivate friendships with others that are lifelong or have these really powerful experiences. But ironically, the times where I would think like, oh, I I look the coolest if there is such a thing, I make like the least friends or I have like the least amount of connections. I think that once people break through that, and a lot of times my some of my best friends initially were like, dude, I thought you were, I'd have to like kind of change what they said, but they like, you were too cool. You were just like the, such the cool guy. But once they got through all that, then they were like, hey, dude, we're buddies. Like you're you, I'm me, we're friends, we're so close, we're tight. I remember one of my friends in particular, I used to see him at the gym. And at the gym, you're kind of like, Everyone, everyone's like got the game, the game face, the workout face on. He's like, dude, I'd walk past you. Like you wouldn't even say hi. You just look like all tough. (laughs) He's like, I thought, you know, I thought you were, I didn't think you were that nice of a guy, but then I got to know you and now we're, I love this kid. So it's just funny how that works. 
So I think some of the takeaways and some of the ways we can avoid this is to really all of the time try to see people the way God sees them. See people as human beings. Really look for the humanity. And sometimes, too, when you meet someone, just like you're saying, you can kind of get the wrong first impression or perception of who someone is. And I have found that usually, nine times out of ten, if you try to just love someone, eventually you're going to see all of the good things about them and realize how much you could have missed out on if you had just written them off as not cool or not my kind of person or, or we have nothing in common. Even people you don't have a lot in common with can usually teach you a whole lot. And you're probably missing out on a lot of joy and a lot of depth and a lot of personal growth if you aren't extending yourself to have those kind of friendships and be open to relationships with people who can teach you something about what you don't already know. Yeah. I like, I keep thinking of the scripture, a perfect love casteth out all fear, like as you're oh, talking, yeah. which I think in these scenarios and in these relationships and getting to know people, like when I can approach those scenarios with a perfect love where typically there might be an inclination of like, man, I got to get decked out. I got to look good or I got to fit into some mold or like these are the type of people that I want to impress. A lot of that is so fear-based. If you really look at the core of it, it's mm -hmm. like, what's the underlying cause of that? It's like, it's fear. It's fear that I'm going to look stupid or not not good or whatever. But a perfect love casteth out all fear. And if I like put that out and live from the heart and interact with people in that way, it's amazing to see what comes back. And if you look at Jesus as the perfect example, I love that he went to the woman at the well and was like, you're it. You're the person that's going to go tell everybody. And she's at first like, you don't want to be associated with me. Nobody wants to be seen with me. And he says, no, I, I see you and I know you. He starts telling her all this stuff about her that she's shocked that he knows. Like you've had these husbands and these relationships and, and still I pick you. You're it. You're the person. Go tell everybody. So you think about that and how unlike Jesus, she was in that moment, and yet he picked her anyway. Where can you be doing that? Where can you be looking for another mom in a social group or another friend who you could connect with? And where can you walk into a room and look and say, instead of like, oh, who's going to make me most comfortable? Maybe who can I sit by who maybe needs me the most? And then you're probably going to have a way more enriching relationship there with someone who's you actually probably will relate to a lot more than you even realize that you didn't even, you wouldn't have even known if you hadn't tried to be that person's friend. I think we've got to be really aware and careful also of the example we're setting for our kids, how we talk about other people, how we make comments when other people aren't around because whatever they're hearing us say in their little tiny brains, they're computing that as this is socially acceptable or it's okay to think of other people this way. One super good example of this, I'll never forget this, is a guy in our old ward who I think is now the bishop of that ward, but he gave a talk once in church and he said, 
we should all be really careful about driving home from our church services. From In our church, we have once a month a, test, a fast and testimony meeting where people, it's kind of like open mic and people can go up and say whatever they want. And he said, be really careful about driving home and evaluating people's testimonies and making comments that your kids are definitely sitting in the backseat listening to because they're going to take that behavior and perceive it as acceptable. We go to church and then we go home and we kind of pick people apart for whatever we do or don't think they did right or wrong or or what sounded good to us or not or whatever. That's how they're going to perceive the world. And I think there's a lot of those comments and conversations and things that happen behind closed doors and adults think that it is behind closed doors, but what they maybe aren't thinking about is that whatever their kids are listening into, and they are listening all the time, they're forming their unconscious opinions of what is okay and how to perceive other people and how to treat other people, how to think of them. Thoughts turn to things and actions, and we know that. So that's just something that I'm always careful of. I'm certainly not perfect at it, but I try to be careful of talking badly about other people, you know, never saying things that are like an unkind label. I really try to refrain from that, especially, I mean, even in my own personal life, but especially around my kids, like saying like, oh, so-and-so is a loser or anything like that, where then they're going to think it's okay to treat somebody in the cafeteria that way. Like, oh, that kid's a loser. So I think a lot of those perceptions start at home and in conversations and attitudes that you think they're not paying attention to, and they are. They always are. Yeah. I think it's always a sobering moment when I look at something my kid does, and I'm like, man, like, where did you, like, where did you pick this up? Like, I'm so embarrassed of this. And I'm like, oh, you got that from me. From me. Yep. You know, I, I, I just look at that, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. They are watching and, and modeling what I am showing them. And yeah for better or for worse. I mean, there, there's a flip side that's really good to that where it's like, okay, cool. Like they're doing things that I've tried to express as important or show them you know, serving or being kind to others or whatever, but it also can work the other way as well. So it's like, you have to model it. And that's something that I'm always trying to get better at. Last thought I think would be, how do you want people to remember you in the next life? We have, my 20-year high school reunions coming up soon. And I just keep thinking, I hope I didn't say too many mean things or do too many stupid things back then. I can't really remember very many conversations or interactions that stand out in my mind as something that I really need to make amends for. But, you know, I know I was young and stupid and said things that now I probably would cringe at. But I hope that First of all, I hope that some of those people and whatever will give me grace and understanding that we all have grown up and learned a lot since then, hopefully. But also, I hope that at the end of this life and in the next life, when I have a heaven reunion, kind of like a high school reunion, but hopefully even better, that I won't feel regret when I see people, that I'll feel like, okay, I, I wasn't perfect, but I really tried to treat people the way I would have wanted to be treated. And that's ultimately like what God has asked us to do, the second greatest commandment. And even, I mean, it ties into the first two because he wants us to love others. And 
So it's honoring God and honoring other people around us. If we can treat others the way we would want to be treated and, and not have regrets in the next life of, gosh, I should have cared a lot more about how someone else felt than looking cool or being part of the cool kids club. I don't know. Final takeaways or final thoughts for me. This is a big one for me. I'm, I guess I'm like a recovering cool guy. Like, (laughs) I guess more, more accurately, like a recovering wannabe cool guy. Like I, I just look back and I just cringe at the things that I did in the name of being cool that I look back were just not cool in any way, shape or form. But I really think it now, my understanding of what's actually cool is like loving others. That's cool. Like being honest and and open and loving with others and serving, being willing to to give your best self. And like, that's really what is cool. Like, that's what it's all about and, and doing the things that Christ taught. And I think that that shift as you mature and as I've, I guess I've hopefully matured some, that that starts to happen. I think of one of my cousins and his, we have these like missionary farewell talks and like, he's like, Hey guys, like, I know it's like not cool to say it, but, but I love you guys, you know? And and I, everyone laughed because they got it. They're like, Oh my gosh, that's so funny because it's true that as a teenage kid to say like, Hey, I love you just to like a friend or something, it's viewed as quote unquote, like, Oh, not cool or, you know, whatever. But think of that. What do we all want? Like, what do I want? Like, I want like someone to love me and which is, it's so sad. So really like the takeaway is what, what is actually cool in, in the real true sense of the word is, is love, is loving others, loving God, loving your neighbor. I mean, it sounds like one of the great commandments, right? The two great commandments. So totally makes sense to me. That's so interesting because I've never thought about it until this moment, but it's kind of a thing that people say as they leave ARP. Like people will say to each other, love you guys. A lot of people say that as they leave the meetings. And it's almost like a, I think it's the only place other than family where I just feel like it's culturally a thing that we do. We tell people all the time as we leave meetings or, you know, exchange with people that we've met in the program that we love them. And it's, it feels normal. And now thinking about it, it's because, yeah, we know those people so vulnerably and real. We know the real people and who's behind each of those people that you are achieving that ultimate cool, really, really cool connection that's real. I hope nobody feels shame from this, but I hope you walk away from this episode and just think about maybe a person that you could connect with who isn't in your group or who isn't automatically someone that you see or interact with. And whoever's coming to mind right now is probably the person that you need to reach out to or send a text to or go on a walk with or invite to dinner or go to lunch with or whatever. And sometimes those friendships end up being the actual most meaningful anyway. So I challenge you to do that and then just see the fruits of that unfold. And it probably is going to be even, even better than you imagined. So, and if that happens, let us know. We don't, we love to hear stories like that. So have a good week. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to Mint Arrow Messages. 
Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. Subscribe to our Apple podcasts and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode.